Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast, where we uncover the stories that shaped the business owner. Brought to you by Lisa Settle and Isla O'Hara. Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast. My name is Lisa Settle. And my name is Isla O'Hara. The Business Diaries is a quarterly storytelling event where business owners come along and share their stories on a given theme. There's always a great deal to learn from these stories and also from the business owners. We've been in tears, we've laughed our heads off, and we've experienced every emotion in between times. The podcast came about as a way to further the story and continue the discussion with the storyteller. However, we're still in lockdown. It's June 2020 and life as we know it is actually on hold. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. So we're doing things a little differently. Um, Isla, tell us what we're up to today. Well, today I am very excited to introduce our storyteller, Steve Wells. Steve and I met, uh, I think earlier this year, possibly, I'm not sure exactly when, but definitely earlier in this year. And the first time I heard Steve talk, I knew that I wanted to have him on the business diary. So we met, we had a a conversation that could have gone on for hours, and you will see why when you start to hear him speak. And he was signed up to present his story at the Business Diaries in March, which, as Lisa has alluded to, we were, we were not allowed, we weren't, the, the event in March just didn't happen. So Steve is sharing his story with us today, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Steve. Steve is an experienced international speaker futurist, strategist, facilitator, and founder of Informing Choices Limited, which is an insights business specializing in futures and foresight. And he will explain more when he starts as to what that means. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We're looking forward to your story. Can we? Are you there? Hello. I bet. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, excellent. Great. Yeah. So that would be a short story, otherwise. (laughs) It would be, wouldn't it? Uh, Can we hand it over to you to to tell your story now, and then we'll join up with you for discussion afterwards. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed, Lisa and Isla. So it was actually November, Isla. We uh, we met when I came along as a uh, as a speaking club virgin let's put it that way um, uh, in in Tunbridge Wells so uh, in order to tell my story what I want to do is just set a little bit of context I'll explain a little bit about my business about the proposition that I have then I'm going to go into the professional path and what I'd like to do is uh, leave with some tips some things that have been important for me and my journey. Um, I was going to come up with three, I'll come up with five, uh, which as some people will know me, won't be at all surprised at that. So let me go back to the beginning then and let me think about the context. Because unlike a lot of people, certainly that I speak to, I've never had a career plan. Uh, I've been pretty good at taking opportunities as they've come along, but I've never had a structured career plan and I don't have one now. Kind of linked to that, I've never done the same job for longer than five years. Uh, I was born in 1960. You can do the math, uh, but I've never had a job for longer than five years. So renewal uh, and uh, curiosity are, are things that, uh, that, that are important to me. 
So I'd said I'd say something about the proposition of, of my business, and Isla's alluded a little bit to what I do. But basically, I work with the future. I work with foresight. And the under, what underlies that is the notion that exponential change is actually our new reality. And we've seen how quickly things can change through the pandemic. So the pace, the scale, the reach, and the potential impacts of some of the underlying drivers of change that we've seen are absolutely extraordinary. And of course, they represent both challenge and they represent opportunity for us as individuals, but also for organizations of all shapes and sizes. So through my business, what I really like to do is to work to help individuals and organizations make sense of the emerging future, and particularly to think about how the changes we see can enable a human future. And I do that through creating keynote speeches, presentations, executive education events, horizon scanning studies, and providing strategic support. So the third thing I'd said I'd talk about is, is kind of the professional path. And, and this, I suppose, is really, uh, really the guts of, the, of my story. So I left school back in 1978. Um, and if you didn't hear that, that was 1978 um, with some A-levels. And I started work for a pharmaceutical company in Kent called Pfizer. Many of you, I'm sure, will have heard of that. And my earlier career was in accounts and finance through some basic cost accounting stuff, some financial accounting stuff. I then moved on into more senior roles through manufacturing, the animal health business, and eventually pharmaceutical marketing. And all of those roles, I think, were really quite interesting in grounding me in big business ideas, big business culture, um, a sense of the important things that organizations need to do, the way that organizations manage people. And a lot of the experiences I had then really sort of shaped uh, the way that I thought, really sort of shaped, not that I knew it at the time, uh, but really shaped how I think about the world in the future. After I'd finished with those finance roles, I started working in strategic planning as, first of all, an, an analyst and then as a manager. And uh, when I came out of that role, I was actually leading the strategic planning for the company in the UK. After that, there was a role that I undertook, which was around partnership strategy. So it was like an internal consulting role. And that was very much about um, leading the organization's strategy development in partnership, but also helping individuals within the organization develop their capability. Then the curveball. I was made redundant. And on the face of it, that sounds like you know, a fairly drastic and bad thing to happen to someone. But it never felt like that to me. What was really interesting was, and I'd been at the company for a very long time at that point. This was by 2007. It felt like an opportunity that I wouldn't get again. And what was interesting was the period between the announcement and physically walking out of the gate of the, of the uh, company's premises. That's a whole different story. That was very bizarre. Um, but what I found myself doing was using the last three months I was at the company, developing some of my own ideas that I would subsequently use um, in my business. And I've actually been talking to senior sales managers in the company and justifying the company's decision to make my role redundant. Because people were saying, you provide a great service. It's really great, the insights that you bring. I can't see how that's not important to the company going forward. 
But actually, I did have a different view. I could see what the company was trying to do. The idea was the work that we'd done should now be embedded in individuals and departmental practice across the company. There was something else really interesting that happened through the redundancy period. Now, Pfizer is a really good employer. It was a good employer then, and it's a good company to work for now. But they did something really quite interesting. Redundancy of a large number of people is a complex thing. So they tried to make it simple. The way they made it simple was they divided us all into two groups, those that were staying, those that were leaving. And bizarrely, they almost forgot about the ones that were staying and put all their concentrated effort on the ones that were leaving. There was the opportunity to look for other jobs inside the company. There were outplacement support. There were future career support. You know, there was a lot of support as well as the redundancy money that was there. And that was the way the company thought that it was looking after people that were leaving. But what they didn't realize was that there are actually four groups of people. In the group of people that were being made redundant, there were two groups. One group were terrified about leaving. They felt let down by the company. You know, this wasn't the company I joined. What is this company doing to me? What have I done to deserve this? I'm scared. I'm frightened. I'm anxious. There was another group. Actually, I was in this group. And I saw it as a wonderful opportunity. The company and my experience in the company had taught me so much. I was ready to try something different. And it felt really exciting. I was really energized about that. And I really did use the last few months I was there to test out some of the ideas that I had. The company became my laboratory. Now, as I said, there were four groups and the other two groups sat within the heart of the portion of the company, those people that weren't being made redundant. And most of those people were relieved. They were pleased they were staying in the company. You know, the company has protected me from this awful future. But there were another group of people who were staying in the company that were really disappointed they weren't made redundant because they could see the potential opportunity for their development, for their ideas, to bring their new ideas to a different marketplace. So from a simple perspective, you split the company into those that are staying and those that are going. But actually, there were four groups of people. And what was really interesting, the company seemed apprehensive, frightened even, to allow those groups of people to express themselves, express their views, express their insights. And I'm convinced that had the people that were excited about leaving, as well as those that were concerned about leaving, they could have really helped the people that were staying over the change that they were undergoing. And of course, this whole change thing is something I'm still interested in now because we don't resist change, do we? We resist being changed. So all that was going on as well. So I left Pfizer with the idea of setting up my business, my business informing choices. And between 2007 and 2015, I focused very much on strategic support, on helping people think about collaborative working and partnership, and, and focused increasingly on foresight and futures, which is something that um, I picked up and got really interested in with my strategy role within the company. In 2015, um, a colleague that I'd originally met as a supplier to me when I was at Pfizer, had an idea to create a business around publishing. So between 2015 and earlier this year, we worked on publishing, on keynote speaking and consultancy as the three pillars of the business to think about how we took ideas and enabled people to think about um, a rapidly changing future. So that foresight and futures theme continued to run through the things that I was really interested in working with.
We brought seven books to market, um, a number of them based on our own work, one of them based on a separate, a completely independent author's work, and a number of them based upon multiple author contributions. So the result of going out to market and asking for calls of contributions. And the last of those was actually published on the 1st of June. It was called Opportunities, uh, sorry, Aftershocks and Opportunities, and was all about scenarios in the post-pandemic future. Now, what was interesting was I actually took the decision back in March to restart my old business. And those of you that were quick at doing the math will realize that was 2015 to 2020 I was working in the business. And what I'd noticed is that that cycle of me not wanting to do the same job for longer than five years came to play again. So there was something going on for me that I really can't understand, that I really can't work out, that says, what is it that happens every five years that makes me want to do something different? So I'm back in informing choices. I'm working on keynote speaking, particularly when the market, if it ever does come back, executive education and horizon scanning studies. Because more than ever before, I'm interested in the future. And if we think about what people are talking around right now, people are talking about a new normal. People are talking about the challenge between going back to what we knew before and a total reboot of society, of taking the lessons that we can learn through the pandemic and thinking about how we build a more equitable society, a safer society, a more sustainable society after the pandemic. So hopefully that gives you a, a good flavor of the kind of things that I've gone through. Uh, it gives you a bit of a flavor about Steve Wells and uh, some of the ways that he thinks. So I'd like to leave you with, I was going to be three, but it's going to be five tips. And the first one is you don't need a plan. Actually, you need a mindset to follow opportunities. And one of the reasons is that if we really think about the future, the future is uncertain. So if you are going to build a plan, if you're kind of the person that needs a plan, make sure you build some flexibility. Make sure you build some resilience into the plan because you may have to change the direction you travel in in order to achieve some of your goals. Be prepared to refresh and reinvent yourself. yourself. And I've done that a number of times. And I think linked to that is be curious. Constantly be curious. Continue to learn. Not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting learn for improvement's sake, but just learn stuff because there's so much stuff out there that we could all learn from it, whether it's something in your, mar- your own marketplace, something in a different marketplace, a new way of thinking about the world. Learn about yourself. Be yourself. Be authentic and be aware of all those things. Self-awareness was something that I came to through a development program when I was at Pfizer. And it's critically important that we know what we want. We know how we project ourselves and we're aware of how that looks and feels to other people. And my last tip is if you don't like reading that much, read this one book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. It's an absolutely brilliant roadmap to help you think about individual and organizational journeys from dependence through independence to interdependence. So I'd really commend that book. Thanks. That's brilliant, Steve. Thank you so much. I had to stop myself from interrupting there. I've got so many questions waiting to uh, <laughs> to jump in on. Um, 
Isla, are you with us? I'm absolutely with us. I was just thinking, what an inspiring talk, Steve, that you gave us. And your your themes around five, I definitely think there's something going on there. Your five years and then your five <laughs> points is three five not enough. points, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you know, do you know what? I didn't notice that. You're right. Five is the magic number. Yeah. I think it is. I think that is your your magic number. We've we've got so much to talk about. You know your 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 key themes on you know the rebooting of society and the opportunity that we have now to to build the society that we want, one that is sustainable, and that that we have an opportunity here to take the mantle, if you like, and and just create something that we want rather than have something that is foisted uh, foisted upon us, but. Lisa, I mean, how how you didn't interrupt? I mean, kudos oh, well, to you. <laughs> I know. I, I wanted to do. I wanted to, and I, I I was smiling and smiling at one of the first things you said. And I've got to pick you up on this: is that um, you know your comments relating to not having a plan or never having a plan. Now, I, I mean, I could just imagine if that sentence had been shared at a live event. I can just picture the audience, certain people in the audience as well, sort of nodding their heads and smiling in agreement. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's all sort of seriousness. I'm not saying that business plans are useless. Of course, that they're extremely important in in certain respects. Um, but it just does seem that a lot of entrepreneurs just get up, take action, and tweak along the way which is kind of what you were saying anyway, and it's one yeah. of your tips as well. But do you see that Do you see that as your secret weapon to success almost? I mean, it, it probably is. I mean, one of the things that I think I've, I've observed over the years is that successful organisations, big organisations as well, tend to operate on three time horizons in parallel. So, you know, we all have to work really hard to make sure that we're still here next year. And that's very often about operational excellence this year. You know, it's really mm. winning the race for the current year. Um, the second time horizon is then actually looking forward. And we do actually get on and we do some business planning. And typically, a lot of organizations call that strategic planning. Mm. Now, what I would say about that is the typical approach is to extrapolate what we've had in the past and then feel comfortable in our organization that we know how the future is going to play out. Uh, I think that gives a false sense of security. I understand, I understand why it happens. Uh, we need to give a sense of confidence maybe to our investors, also to our employees, and give ourselves a sense of, you know, we know the direction we're traveling in and why. Mm. Re really successful organizations then think about a third time horizon, and that's the future. And the future is not certain. The future is about trying to understand what are the weak signals we see, how do those weak signals connect or not to the, to the trends that we're seeing, and what does that mean for our business? Does it mean that we need to think about acquiring talent in a different way? Does it mean to think uh, – does it mean we need to look at how marketplaces are operating differently? Does it mean we think – clients and customers will have different needs in the future. And actually, that piece then is about preparedness. It's about preparing for disruption and change. And if we don't do that, then we become like Blockbuster. And Blockbuster didn't see the future, didn't see streaming. It even turned Netflix down, who offered them a partnership deal. Now, Blockbuster mm. don't exist, and Netflix are worth tens of billions of dollars on the market. Yeah. Yeah, but it's easy. easy. Yeah, it's a very good example. But it's very easy, I think, for businesses that, you know, when you are running your own business, 
it's very easy to be caught up in the here and now and not really be thinking about setting yourself up for the future. So, you know, that's probably where some of the businesses fall down, would you say? And Well, there's a, there's, I think there's an interesting dynamic there that happens between small and bigger businesses because you could argue that if you're small enough to be really nimble and respond to the marketplace really quickly and you have a mindset that allows you to accept you need to change and then do it, mm. why do you need to plan extensively? On the other hand, if you're part of a big organization and you have a long a product portfolio, you have a large number of people to think about and look after, you have a large number of customers and clients, then actually the whole complexity of how you go to market is really very different. You might also have investors to keep happy. An investment is about future return. So there's a different, there's a different need depending upon the size of the business, I think. Yeah. I'd like to pick you up, Steve, on, on something you said. You, you talked about when you made redundant that you you had a mindset where you believed that this was a wonderful opportunity and you set about uh, doing everything that you could to, uh, I think you said, you used the company as your laboratory whilst you tested and refined your ideas. And, and in your tip at the end, you, you, you talk about having a mindset to follow opportunities. Yeah. In this current climate, with, with many people now, they're entering, uh, they're setting up businesses on their own, they're and entrepreneurs who are on their own. How do you know which is the right opportunity to take? Um, how have entrepreneurs ever known which is the right opportunity to take, <laughs> do you think? Well, which isn't a very convenient answer for you, but th- th- I don't... There might be some different context at the moment, but those questions about where's the opportunity, how do I access them, what's the right model um, to um, interact with potential customers and clients, those same questions, I think, exist. And what's interesting at the moment is if we look at the opportunities to go to market, then actually the technology that we have available really supports uh, the the way that we might do that. Uh, it, there's um, an easy way to get to so many people now because everyone's online. Hardly anyone can actually meet physically. That actually makes it easier in some ways to take our ideas to market. Equally, the entrepreneur entrepreneur marketplace right now is pretty crowded because everyone's doing the same thing. And what we know when we look back is that by far the majority of entrepreneurial ideas fail. And they Mm -hmm. tend to fail earlier rather than later. So I think the same challenges for getting a business off the ground exist. I think the incredibly important thing right now is to bear in mind how different any marketplace might look over the next 12 to 18 months. And I would argue that pretty much every single marketplace that you can think of is going to be so radically different in 12 to 18 months' time than it's ever changed over an equivalent period in history. Mm -hmm. The ability to think about those things, to understand what you need to be flexible with, to continue to learn as you develop your idea and as you take your idea to market are just so crucially important. Those ideas and those entrepreneurs that accept flexibility, uh, that accept a mindset of change, are likely to be more successful, I'd argue, than those that have a plan and stick to it. Back to that plan thing. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think for me as well, you know, there's a, a level of well, there's two things. That one is that how averse you are to risk, and the other one is is kind of in this instinct. Um, yeah. Isla and I were just discussing the other day about how things sit well with you, and if if something, even if you really don't know what that is, but you have that feeling, then that's that's not for you. But also that level of risk. I mean, I, I often say, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And yeah. if you've worked out what the worst that can happen, what that is, and if that's doable, then, you know, maybe not desired, but if it's doable, then why not give it a go? Because what the time you may spend thinking about these things, you know, you can talk yourself out of it and someone else has jumped on the bandwagon anyway. So... Yeah. I mean, part of that for me is actually about authenticity and particularly being authentic about ourselves. So how aware are we of the degree of risk that we are prepared to take? Is that risk a financial risk? Is it a reputational risk? Is it a mm. risk um, of uh, having our ideas rejected? You know, whatever it might be. Yeah. So if we're aware of our reluctance to take risk of whatever you know whatever the domain that risk exists in then there's nothing to say actually we shouldn't be risk averse but we should be really good at reacting very fast mm. Mm. So i, I want to just go oh sorry carry on so you know so there's a lot of risk in first mover isn't there going into a marketplace there's much less yes, risk yeah. going second or third um, mm. so long as you can move quickly i think that's the critical thing it's it's about you know what are you prepared to do and being really aware of what's behind that what sits behind that you know the real you mm. Mm, definitely that's basically so, what we have to we, we can we can only really draw on that at the moment because for many people the basic framework that we had for making good business decisions has all changed so the only thing we have left is our core sense of self, belief, and authenticity. So I think um, it, it goes back. One of the lessons I learned um, a long time ago was was about control and influence. So what is it that I can control right now? Mm, Genuinely exactly. control goes back to a kind of awareness and authenticity. I think as well. What is it I can control? There's a there's a there's a kind of an out outside to that, which is what can I influence by asking questions, by talking about stuff, by engaging with people, by interacting, by researching, by learning, by changing, you know, all those kind of things. And then there's mm. another one outside that, uh, which I have absolutely no influence of, of at all. And, uh, you know, I just have to get on with whatever the, the world does to me. But I think having that clarity about control, influence and complete lack of control is really, really helpful. And I think it's important that we have that in mind so that we can direct our energies where they give us the best return. Yeah, especially now. That's very, very apt for now. I, I want to take you also or take us all back to the part of your story where you were saying once you were all made redundant, you were, you were split into two groups, those that were leaving and those that were staying. And I know that um, chatting to Isla, Isla's been in a similar situation. What, what was your experience there, Isla? It's an interesting yeah. concept. It really, I, you know, I find it quite sensible, but on the other hand, quite bizarre. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's when you go through it at the time, you don't really, you, you're introspective. Um, what happened to me is the, uh, um, I was in pharmaceutical PR at the time and the company, the agency that I was working for, was going through a big merger 
so there was big changes. There were uh, there were redundancies, but there were also big changes in the way that we were expected to work. Our standard standard team structure was changing. Um, we were being asked to uh, collaborate a lot more closely with advertising and digital marketing sides of the business, whereas before PR was very focused and very specialised. So I was one of the people who was staying. Um, but as Steve said, when he was talking, there, there was almost more support given to those who were leaving. And those of us who were staying, whether we felt grateful that we were staying and therefore uh, felt more enthusiastic and more motivated to work hard in order to somehow, in a strange kind of roundabout way, justify the fact that we were staying when our colleagues were leaving. And, you know, as Steve said, that that other group of the people who were staying kind of almost resented the fact that they were staying and they were going to leave anyway. So there were all of these changes going on. And I do remember that the support was given to those who were leaving and us who were staying pretty much had to get on with it. Even though those of us who were staying were going through an intense period of change. Mm. Was there much interaction with, with, with you, Steve, when with the, the leavers and, and those that were staying? Sorry, say that again. Was there much? Was there much interaction? Did you have conversations with them? Were you were you separated? <laughs> no, we weren't. We weren't physically separated. But I think. Um, I mean, I think we have to go back as to why um, large organisations do that. And it's. And I suppose it's. You know, I like elephants, but I couldn't eat a whole one in one sitting. So what they're trying to do is that they're trying to look at this really big, complex problem and trying to simplify it. And I have absolutely no doubt that the company was doing its best for the people it felt guilty about getting rid of. I'm kind of mm, simplifying mm. it enormously there. So, you know, first of all, you take this big complex problem, you break it down into chunks to simplify it, and then you focus on the piece that you think needs uh, needs immediate attention. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, it's on those people that are going because, you know, those that's the group of people that are going to suffer the most hurt, isn't it? Because you know, yes. everyone that's leaving really doesn't want to leave this wonderful company, you know, wrong. Um, but I, th I think that's in part what it is. It's actually about a, a management process, a change management process. And I think, unfortunately, many really big organizations, well, you know, medium-sized ones as well, they have a whole set of processes, um, of tools, of approaches and attitudes that seek to simplify issues because no one in the organization can handle anything complex or the leaders in the organization aren't capable of engaging, interacting and talking about complex issues. And the bizarre thing is, of course, that that's the reality. You know, our reality is complex. It is uncertain. And yet yeah. organizations choose in this kind of parent-child type way to simplify the issues because that will help the people understand better. Mm. And that's, you know, that's going to ring true. This sort of level of or huge level of complexity is, is going to ring true for us in the, in the coming months when people are just trying to work out we've got this huge question of unemployment it's going to be a, almost like a crisis that we've never seen I guess but you know to unravel I mean I, th I think it is a crisis that we've never seen before uh, well having said that 
it isn't a crisis that people who understand how to use foresight and are futurists, you know, it, it, that's, this isn't something that hasn't been foreseen. And you can see that come through by the different degrees of preparedness that different governments have exhibited. Mm. Yeah, so, how many futurists have we got in the government? Do we know? Uh, well, the, I mean, a lot. I mean, in fairness to government, there is an, a lot of really good foresight work that happens through the civil service. Now, the issue is, and, it, and it's a, there's a really interesting parallel here between business and government, because business generally has a fairly short-term view. And one of the reasons it has a short-term view is because it has to go with these extrapolated trends to provide nice numbers to the marketplace so the investors are happy. And, and that tends to be on a quarterly and an annual basis. The thing is, governments do a fairly similar thing when they, they, they kind of take the benefits uh, that seem to be accruing towards the end of a parliamentary cycle, create a really attractive proposition through a marketing campaign so they get re-elected. So a lot of the futures work that might be applicable for thinking about what might happen in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time, where's the political benefit in bringing that to the public attention when actually yeah. I need to be working out how I'm going to get reelected within within a five year uh, time frame. So sure. that, that's one of the things that happens. But I mean, we, we, sh we shouldn't think that actually at the UK government level or certainly the, the supporting civil service, there is an absolutely brilliant work that happens um, in defence, in, in environment, in health, at the home office. There's some really amazing stuff. But then you have to be prepared to invest in the options that the foresight brings to your attention. Mm. And that's one of the things that arguably we and many other countries haven't done. Yeah, maybe it's, time, maybe it's time for change. <laughs> and 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 there's an there's an there's an interesting implication of that because in the very same way that we think government should change and be more prepared and invest more in keeping us prepared, there's a cost to that. Now mm. we all we're all used to that because we insure our cars, we insure our homes, but we didn't insure our society against the impacts of a pandemic. And the way we insure society is by spending money investing in testing, in PPE, in uh, flexibility within the health service. You know all those kinds mm. of things, and mm. that means increasing taxes. Yeah. Oh well, let's not go down that road. Exactly <laughs> my <laughs> <Let's> point. <not> <laughs> We're, we're fast running out of time, actually. So I, I just want to get in. I, I know that you've published seven books and, and the latest sort of obviously is very apt for, for the, the time that we're experiencing called Aftershocks and Opportunities, which yeah. is scenarios for a post-pandemic future. So do you just want to give us a quick overview there and, and also let us know where we can buy it? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, first of all, the, the, the book is what we call a multi-author book. So we put a call out for uh, content in March. It, as, a, as a bit of an aside, one of the things that we try to do when we publish these books is bring them to market really fast. So we brought this, mar this book to market from concept to publication in 10 weeks. Mm. Um, that's an extraordinarily quick time. The idea of this book is to help people think about what are the different scenarios that may start to emerge through the pandemic and when we get into a post-pandemic period. 
And the kind of content that's in the book ranges from how will we think about education post-pandemic? How will we think about the, um, the, the coming together of um, the US election and the way that the US economy may or may not recover? And what mm -hmm. are the global implications of that? Um, how do we think that business is going to start evolving in the UK? When we say preparedness, what do we mean for government and for enterprise? How do we challenge our notion of uh, robust supply chains? Does it mean that we need to be manufacturing more critical product in the UK rather than importing it from abroad? How will travel and tourism change in the future? What's going to potentially happen to the aviation sector? So all these things are baked into the individual chapters um, of the book. Critically, um, they really talk about how do we think about a new landscape? And what might the future of jobs, work and organisations be? So for me, those are the two headlines that really leap out of the book. Those are the kind of questions mm. that we're hoping people will ask as a result of that. And the yeah. easiest way to get information on the book is to come to my website, informingchoices.com. There's a section on all the books that, uh, that I've been involved with, um, and that will take you to a place where you can buy the book and more information about that and all the other books as well. That's fabulous, Steve. Thank you for sharing that. So along with your website, how else can people get in touch with you if they want to continue this conversation further? Um, you can search for me in Google. I come up pretty high up in the Google search. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and just by searching for informing choices, you should come right, right to me. I'm nothing to do with Northern Ireland or some guy called Steve Wells in the US, uh, but you very quickly get informing choices in the UK. So find me there and you can get hold of me through my website or those other social media platforms. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Um, I think it's safe to say that we could have gone on and on, but all good things <laughs> must come to an end, I'm afraid. And uh, I have to say that that's it for today. Um, all that, that remains is to say thank you again to our guest, Steve Wells. Thank you, Steve, for thank spending you, time with us. Very welcome. And, Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's been great. Um, also, thanks to the wonderful Paul Cheese for creating our jingle. And of course, you, the listener. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and please do join us again for the next podcast. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this edition of The Business Diaries. We would love to hear your feedback. Please find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Biz Diaries. 